0: encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in this, Austin last preached about 1 John two weeks ago and uh, we're going to talk about the evidence that a Christ follower knows God. So as you're turning there, I'm going to share a couple things about the trip to Kenya, next week I'll give a more detailed report as we get all our pictures together and everything, but It's amazing that in 26 hours of flying, you could be 8,600 miles away. That's just amazing, because 100 years ago, 50 years ago, you probably couldn't do that. So that, first of all, was just amazing uh, as well. But uh, throughout the week, we visited two training centers for the Timothy Initiative, Trainers of Trainers. They had 50 people in each one, and uh, I'll share more in detail, but you know that they lead people to Christ and then they have a Paul who trains a Timothy to disciple them and then a Timothy, a Titus. And so what was exciting to me is everything we hear Dale McCauley stand here and tell us when he visits is real out there. In fact, one church, which I'll talk about in more detail next week, they have a church in a landfill and the people leave the landfill when they hear the garbage truck coming so they can go and get their food out of the garbage, and then they come back and finish worship. It just amazes me to think about that. So we went to two training centers. We were at four different churches, and uh, had the opportunity to share God's word at one of the church services through a translator. That was a lot of fun. But probably for me, the highlight was being able to baptize four new believers in the Indian Ocean. That was just an amazing thing. So as I think about that, one of the things I reflected on is the fact that no matter where you go around the world, God's word is true. The power of God's word is the same here as it is anywhere else. And it's the universal truth of reality around the world. And so it's just awesome. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, they worship the same way. Uh, They dance a little different than we do in the services. (laughs) But uh, it's all the same God, and we worship him together. So stay tuned. Next week, we'll tell you more about that. But 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 is our scripture reading today, and I encourage you to take out your notes and uh, follow along. And for those that are newer, I'm a teaching pastor. We're going to be teaching through these verses. There's a lot of scripture today, unusual 14 verses, but in order to uh, follow the theme, uh, that length of scripture is important. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will just use my words... Uh, through your Holy Spirit, to be able to share the truths, the wonderful truths in this word that we're looking at today. We thank you for the Apostle John, writing this later in his life after years of experience of walking with Jesus. Thank you for the joy that we can see dripping from the pages of this epistle. And may we as well uh, follow the pattern of John so that we can have this joy and this assurance of salvation in our lives as well. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the assurance of salvation is rarely talked about, taught, or preached. In many churches, it's actually de emphasized. And scripture is clear that if we're truly a believer in Christ, we can live in confidence and joy based on the foundation of Jesus Christ and the faithfulness of God to bring us to heaven based on the Word of God. I think one of the things that most Christians struggle with is this idea do I have the assurance of my salvation? And there have been times in my life, there may have been times in your life where you wondered if you were truly born again. And so I hope this message is an encouragement to you to have that assurance. You See, the reoccurring teaching in this book of 1 John is that, making sure that you have the assurance of salvation. The key word we said is that you may know, and if we're not careful in how we present the gospel in its full format, easy believism can lead to false assurance, it's important that we share the gospel. It's important that we lead people in a prayer of repentance, saying that they are sinners, realizing they can't do anything to earn their way to heaven, that they have to repent and turn away from their sin, that they trust in the fact that Jesus died as their substitute on the cross and shed his blood for them, and the blood is what forgives us of our sin, and then to ask Christ to come in because he rose again to give us the hope of eternal life. But you see, that's just the beginning. That's just the first step. Salvation begins to progress. Some people emphasize baptism as a sign of salvation, and that needs to be handled very carefully. A research study by the Arizona Christian University found that only 37% of American pastors hold to a biblical worldview. Many do not hold biblical beliefs on issues such as salvation and human sexuality. For example, at least a third of senior pastors in the U.S. believe one can earn a place in heaven by simply being a good person. Some are even open to reincarnation as a possibility. These pastors, further in a survey it was found out, they spend little time, little time in God's word. They listen to the culture, they listen to feelings, they don't base their foundation on the word of God. This passage today and throughout this book will talk about how you can be certain of your salvation and give you thoughts for examining to see if you're truly a member of God's family. Throughout church history, there's been challenges to this teaching of assurance of your salvation. Early on, the Roman Catholic Church adamantly denied the possibility that you could be sure that you're saved. They believe that salvation is a joint effort between God and sinners, and that God will do his part, but the sinner might not continue to do his part. Thus, until you pass from this life, you cannot know for sure if you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. Thus, they added purgatory in there, a place where you could go that's in between heaven and hell, and people could pray, light candles, give money, to atone for the sins, to remove those sins enough that you could get into heaven. You've probably heard this. Johann Tetzel was a, Dominican preacher, he famously said this for the Catholic Church, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Thus, indulgences. The Council of Trent in 1545 stated believers' assurance of the pardon of his or her sins is a vain and ungodly confidence. The Protestant Reformation recovered the true gospel and emphasized that one could know for sure that they're saved and have eternal life. The reformers felt that believers should enjoy the confident hope of salvation. And this, my friends, today, this teaching is like rarefied air. So what kind of God is it that points out our sin and tells us that we would spend eternity in hell and torment and punishment, but not give us a way out of that predicament and give us a way to have assurance of eternal life that we're saved? The reformers believed and taught that the word of God was the objective source of certainty about the assurance of each person's salvation. For the believer, the Holy Spirit gives us the subjective, the inward assurance through the display of spiritual fruit through our lives because we are saved. In Romans 8, it talks about this. It says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The most intimate uh, term they're used for the relationship with the believer and the father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We as believers have this inward sense because of the Holy Spirit that we are connected and we have the hope of eternal life. Just a few verses outside of 1 John talking about the certainty of our salvation and our assurance. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul said, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then look at the rest of this verse, verse 14, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, the Holy Spirit is a down payment on our behalf, the guarantees that we are going to be in heaven with Him. In John 10 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And for those of you who may know a little bit about Greek, you see a double negative in there. And whenever the grammar rule is, if there's a double negative in a Greek sentence, it means it's impossible, there's no possibility. No one can snatch us out of his hand. So as we go through 1 John, we're to examine our hearts to be sure the faith is with us and ask if there is fruit and evidence in our lives that assures us we are part of God's forever family. 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. We are to be examining ourselves to be sure that we are in the faith. And one of the ways we can know that is the fruit of the Spirit, the nine manifestations. The Holy Spirit comes in and gives us these things in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. One last thing before we get to the text to remind you, it's not up to us to know whether another person is born again or not. It's between them and God. Now we can see evidences, we can see fruit, but in the end, only God knows the heart of the person. And that's very, very important. So we're going to look at two things this morning as we check our spiritual status. And the first one is on your outline, the new commandment obedience to God is a sign of one's spiritual status with God. Obedience to God is a sign of one's spiritual status with God. If you're obeying the truth, then you're in the truth. Obedience that continues shows that one is a true follower of Christ. We're walking a journey. Now, it's not always going to be a smooth journey. There's going to be times that we disobey. There's going to be times that we do sin, and as Austin shared in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, how that you know, Christ provided the propitiation for our sin so that we can continue to walk and stay in fellowship with the Lord. But I want to remind you that works do not save, but once you are saved, numerous scriptures and pretty much the whole book of James say that one of the pieces of evidence of our salvation is that we do good works to glorify God for the furtherance of his kingdom. First John 1 John 1.3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He says, by this. This is a transitional thought providing a new set of tests to verify someone's salvation and encourage confident assurance of it. Notice he says, we know. This is the first of 23 times in this book uh, where he uses that word, know. And the word know is to continually perceive something by experience. It's not enough to know the facts, but are we living it out? And as we live it out, are we sensing God's favor upon us? That's how we know. It's ongoing from the moment someone steps across the line of faith and is born again. John doesn't say we hope or think, but we know with certainty. And, you know, some people, as I talk to who are not believers, They're kind of unnerved when I tell them that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a believer in Christ. No other world religion gives you that option. No teaching whatsoever. So the world and news outlets and other venues on the internet really preach a message of fear, doubt, and uncertainty about a lot of things. They're cynical about those in authority, right, wrong, or indifferent. But with news and social media and advertising, I feel like people are doubting and lack certainty in their life and how to live it, and especially when it comes to where they're going to spend eternity. He says there in verse 3, we have come to know him, looking back at the decision to receive Christ and seeing how far they have come and grown in the Christian life. The longer we are with God, the more we know of him experientially and knowledge-wise, and the more obedient we are and loving toward God we become. That's what obedience is all about. But here's the contrast, disobedience that is habitual shows we are not a true follower of Christ. Look at verse four. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This verse is not speaking about the reoccurring sin that happens in the lives of the believers. We sin, we apply what I call Christian soap, 1 John 1:9. if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from ALL, all unrighteousness. This is not talking about the carnal or worldly Christian who's a believer but is living for the world. But this is talking about here that someone who lives in habitual sin and disobedience to God and his commands, who denies the reality of sin, who doesn't believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, who wonders whether they're saved or not, and is repulsed by those who believe in Jesus Christ. You see, there's a difference. There's a difference between being a professing Christian and a possessing Christian. And the distance is 18 inches, the distance from your head to your heart. You can know all about the gospel, you can know all about Jesus, but until you apply it and ask him to come into your heart and life and take control, you do not possess him. We see next, obedience leads to a persevering love for God. Obedience leads to a a persevering love for God. Look at verses 5 and 6 of 1 John 2. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. When we speak of obedience, what are we saying? Here's a good definition to write down. I've given this before, but obedience is doing what you're asked to do immediately with a right heart attitude. That's a challenging definition, isn't it, to think about? But really, that's what God wants. Obedience is doing what you're asked to do immediately with the right heart attitude. And there's really three kinds of obedience if you boil it down, we have to obedience. Think about the slave and his master. The slave doesn't have any choice, doesn't have any option. He has to do what the master says because he's owned by him and he can't leave. He has no option. Then there's the we need to obedience. This is an employee, an employer relationship. He needs to follow the teachings and the job description and the values of the company. But he has the option. He could leave that company and go somewhere else. But he needs to if he wants to continue to get his paycheck, to get raises, to get promoted, he needs to obey. And then there's the third one. We want to obedience. Love others out of love for God. Love others out of a love for God. I think as a Christian, we go through these stages. And sometimes we revisit these stages through our journey of life. In verses 5 through 6, John is talking again to the genuine believer. He says the love for God is perfected. Whenever you see that word perfected in the New Testament, it means maturing, moving to completeness. We haven't yet arrived. There's no one on this planet that, except for Jesus that lived a, a sinless life or we can't attain that. But when he says perfected, it means you're maturing and becoming more like him. You're obeying and loving God imperfectly, but desire and behave in a way that pleases Him. God supernaturally bestows His agape, Godlike love on us at salvation. There's four Greek words for, for love. You think about the English language. We could say we love our puppy, we love hot dogs, we love our spouse. We use that one word in all different ways, but for the New Testament, there's phileo, which means brotherly love, Philadelphia. There's eros, erotic love, talking about that relationship, romantic relationship. There's storge, which is not in the Bible, but an empathetic bond. And then there's agape, and this love is only received by the Holy Spirit. The world cannot possess agape love because it comes from God. Romans 5.5 5 says, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. By the love that's in our hearts and our desire to keep God's commandments, we know our faith is genuine. Notice in in that verse that we're looking at in 1 John, it says, In Him. In verse 5, it could be speaking here of God or as Paul talks about in Christ. But John's perspective is John 15, where he talks about the vine and the branch and how we are connected. And part of that connection means that we're abiding. And God is the resource, the root, and we are the branch. And he, as long as we're abiding and remaining in him, we have what we need to live for him. In verse six, six, it says, being led by the Holy Spirit to obey with the right heart attitude lets us know that we are following Jesus. You see, the genuineness of following an invisible God is seen and made most visible by a believer's behavior. Think about that. We reveal a portion of who God is by how we live for Jesus Christ. And so that's important. And John uses that word walk in verse six, speaking of our conduct, our behavior, that hopefully reflects Christ and is glorifying to him. And Jesus set the example for us to follow in John 6, 38. He said, "'For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will,' but the will of him who sent me. In John 8, 29, Jesus said, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John Stott, who was an English theologian, uh, England and Scotland and those parts of the world over there, he said this, being a Christian consists in essence of a personal relationship to God and Christ, knowing him Loving him and abiding in him as the branch abides in the vine. This is the meaning of eternal life. So the application for this first point is this. Are you seeking to walk the same way Jesus showed us when he was here on earth? Are you seeking to walk the same way Jesus showed us when he was here on earth? And that's what these verses are talking about. He's going to go in more detail here in just a moment. But the question is, how are you doing in following Jesus with your thoughts, your attitudes, and your actions? Let's look next at how we are new creations in Christ and we're putting on the new man, the new behavior. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is a sign of regeneration. Love for our brothers in Christ is a sign of regeneration. In 1 John 2, verses 7 through 8, as we continue in this chapter, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Love shows a follower of Christ is walking in the light. Love shows A follower of Christ is walking in the light. Notice in verse 7, he says, Beloved, that's a term of endearment. Fellow believers, he's speaking to believers here. The old command was given to these early church believers as a reminder when they first came to Christ and were taught as Jewish people to love their neighbor as themselves. And we find that in Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19. Another way of putting it is that the old is not new and yet it is new. New means something in essence and quality, but not chronologically new here. Here's an example. I've read through the Bible many times. I do my devotions almost every day. And it's amazing to me how I've read a passage of Scripture in Psalms or wherever it may be, dozens and dozens of times, but then all of a sudden, something new jumps out. Something new because of the different stage of life I'm in. And the Holy Spirit enlightens me on that. And so while I've read it over and over and I kind of know it, it still becomes new to us. And that's what John is saying here. Now with the Holy Spirit and teaching of Scripture, it's new in you that empowered you to do, whereas before it was a behavior to work in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament times, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came and went. He didn't abide in the person. And so it was all based on, on the works and following the law. But now we have the Holy Spirit and the teaching of Scripture to help us to be new. Verse 8 goes on to share the urgency to obey and walk to display God's love to others. We're given love to share it with all that we can. And as we love others, as we love others, it shows our fellowship with God is good. He talks about moral darkness, sin, Satan's kingdom. It's being removed and cleansed out of our lives. True light is showing that holiness is growing in our lives. The true light is now shining the fundamental character of God out of our lives for other people to see. Our interpreter over there in Kenya was a man named Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and he embodied his name. Young man, early 30s, has a wife and a small, small daughter. But everywhere we went, he was just very... Uh, animated and how he translated, and he always had a smile on his face to go with it, that it wasn't something he was doing perfunctory, but he was looking at it and putting his whole heart into it because he believed what the person was saying and wanted to get that message to those in Swahili language. We are the light that's overcoming the darkness by the power of his word and the Holy Spirit living in us as we reflect the character of God in our life. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness. And here's a great promise. And the darkness has not overcome it. Remember 1 John 4.4, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The light will always overcome the darkness. In Proverbs 11.18, The wicked earns deceptive wages but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. It's a guarantee. 1 John 2, 9 through 10, as we move on, whoever says he is the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. In verses 9 through 11, we see a direct command. If we're saved and we hate other believers in Christ, we are not in the faith. The Gnostics, who Paul was probably addressing here, there were believers who were following the way of the Gnostics who believed that the material world and body was evil and the inner, everybody had an inner spark of divinity and that was the pure. But the Gnostics did not love people. They were filled with pride and contempt. They disdained others who claimed they were enlightened. Only the Gnostics thought they had the corner on the truth. But the one who loves his brother and sister in Christ is continually residing in the light. They've embraced the gospel in their life. They're progressively becoming more and more like Jesus as the old sins drop away and the holiness of Christ is revealed more and more in the new believers' attitudes and behavior. Notice he says there also there's no cause for stumbling at the end of verse 10. We're careful as fellow believers striving to be in fellowship with our church family to avoid doing things that would cause others to stumble or provide obstacles for living out their faith. We also have to be careful that we don't stumble ourselves through false teaching. And the one who has has bought into the world system and is not a believer in Christ doesn't have a deep, abiding love for others. They don't have a sacrificial love for others. It only comes through that agape love that we talked about a few moments ago. Jesus made this statement in John 13, 34 through 35. I want you to read these scriptures with me together out loud. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's a very important message that jesus gave us a sign that we're in the faith a sign that we are confidently walking like jesus wants us to walk paul said a little different in galatians six ten. so then as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith in verse 11 of first john 2 it says but whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Like a blind man using a flashlight, they're the blind leading the blind in their walk in the darkness of their own sin. They're following the natural outflow of their sinful nature. So we shouldn't be surprised about some of the most horrific and heinous things that occur. Not that we want those to happen, but if you follow a person who has seared their conscience, they don't know right from wrong anymore, they've ignored that. The whole outcome of sin, we see the effects of it in our society all around us. Don't be surprised. But love is a stepping stone and the lack of love brings stumbling, hatred, misery, and a lack of joy. A group of first graders had completed a tour of a hospital visit and the nurse directed them and said, would you like to ask some questions? A little boy raised his hand. He says, how come the people who work here are always washing their hands? Well, everybody kind of laughed, and then she she waited for the laughter to subside. and said, She said, first, they love health, and second, they hate germs. First, they love health, and second, they hate germs. In more than one area of our life, love and hate go hand in hand. A husband who loves his wife is certainly going to exercise a hatred toward anyone who would harm his wife. In Psalm 97, it says, you that love the Lord hate evil. It tells us in Romans 12, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor or hate what is evil, cleave to what is good. So hatred equals misery, but love equals joy. Choose to walk in the light of Christ. Then love shows a follower of Christ can overcome sin. This is one of the Great advantages of becoming a believer in Christ. Because through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, through wise counselors, through a church family, people can overcome their sin. That doesn't mean that once they gain some victory, they don't still have the temptation. Sure, that's still there. But we have something that the world doesn't have the ability through the resurrection power of Christ to break the bonds of sin. Look at 1 John 2 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Six times in this letter, John uses the term, I am writing to you. He is writing to fellow believers, those part of God's family. And God's family is filled with people of all different places on their journey in the Christian walk. As we look back, our journeys are all different. And some mature faster than others. And so we need to take that into account as we encounter others in the family of Christ. He says little children. He's showing a progression here. Little children, these are the new converts. The born-again ones literally is what it means. He is emphasizing the early stages of a new relationship with the convert and God. Then he talks about the young. And the young, his emphasis for them is understanding doctrinal truth. Through more and more exposure to the revelation given from God and studying it more and more. The fathers are the believer who advanced in years, spiritually speaking. As the person advances in their faith, they understand doctrine. They learn to know God more intimately. And this changes the more mature Christ followers' behavior to become more and more like Jesus. He or she does that by staying in the word daily, by praying, by putting on the armor of God, by using their spiritual gifts. And John is writing to them as a fellow believer in God's name It is God alone who can forgive us of all our sins. I like this illustration. The believer is somewhat like a scuba diver. We're not uh, created to be in the water for extended lengths of time, but we can put on a wetsuit, we can put on a mask, we can put on oxygen, and we can be a scuba diver in a place that we are not comfortable of inhabiting because we're not of it. And that's the picture of us in the world. We're scuba divers. The resources of God's word, the Holy Spirit, and the the experiences that we have in our walk with Christ. And as we go in and make an impact in this world, uh, we have that suit to protect us from being sucked into the world system, but that we can live in it because we are the light of Christ. We are the salt and light that Christ wants us to be in this world. In Ephesians 4:22 through 24, Paul said this, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I love that verse, verse 24. You know, it says in the Bible that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He imputes his righteousness into us when we receive Christ as Savior to give us the ability. And all righteousness means is right living, living that honors and pleases God. We have the capacity to do that and the resources. So two factors here of one who falls into living for the world as a Christ follower. If you're a carnal Christian, a worldly Christian, you lose the enjoyment of the Father's love by not being in the Word of God and praying on a consistent basis. Second of all, you lose your desire to do God's will by not listening to a still, small voice of the Holy Spirit, but following your feelings and your selfish heart attitudes instead. Let's look lastly at these last three verses as we wrap this section up of Scripture. It says, Do not love the world, verse 15, or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. God makes it clear that we can't have one foot in the world and one foot in his kingdom. The world is the philosophies and systems that are controlled all around us by God's archenemy, Satan. In James 4.4, James doesn't uh, soft-pedal the words. He says, You adulterous people. You know what adultery is? Someone who is not faithful to their spouse. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Ephesians 2, Paul said it this way, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins before you were a believer in Christ, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And that's the world that we live in. In verse 15, John lays out the roots of sin. Now I think, as I've studied, there are probably over 100 Sins listed throughout the Bible. But if you break them all down, you could put them in these three categories that are here found in verse uh, 15 or 16. Verse 16, the desires of the flesh, lust from within your heart for something. It's from within your heart, your mind. Desires of the eyes, this is greed and lust from without. Something you see that you want. You're greedy or it arouses you. And then the pride of life is contempt for dependence upon God. Being independent of God and others, arrogant and all about what I possess. The big letter I. The sinful world, he talks about the lusts and desires of the things in this world that are passing away. These are not from God but Satan. It makes little sense for the Christ follower to crave worldly things since they do not last. We can see these three things desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes and the pride of life several places in scripture. Remember back in Genesis 3, Eve when she came upon the fruit that was forbidden. It says she saw okay, the desire of the flesh she looked, desires of the eyes she took, the pride of life. We see Achan in Joshua chapter 7 when he was told not to take the spoils after defeating the enemy and he took them and put them under his tent and buried them there. It says in Joshua 7, he saw, he looked, and he took. David and Bathsheba, that story, you know, David got involved in immorality and adultery. He saw Bathsheba swimming. He stared, and then he took. It's interesting that Jesus was tempted three times in Luke 4 with these same three approaches by Satan. This is the threefold approach that Satan uses to get believers to sin and to separate their fellowship with God. I'm always interested in the Bible to see what things are emphasized. It's interesting that Proverbs 14.12 is repeated in 16.25 when verses are repeated, they're pretty serious things. And it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. God gives us a promise at the end of verse 17, the one who does the will of God is a true follower of Christ who will remain in fellowship with God for all of eternity. This is one of the signs of a true believer, one who perseveres, one who remains, one who gets up after sinning and continues to move on in holiness to be like Jesus. Someone who serves Christ both now and for eternity, I just want to remind you, it is worth it. Remember that. C.T. Studd was a famous missionary and he said this, only one life will soon be passed and only what is done for Christ will last. Jim Elliot also was a missionary. He said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The application here is your heart's desire to glorify God and please him by walking in the will of God. Is that your heart's desire? Is that what gets you going in the mornings? that you're a child of God, that you get this day that's in front of you and all the grace that's given to you to live for him, to glorify him, to walk in his will. Our key thought of this message asks this, are we seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in your life and through you as evidence of a personal relationship with God? As we close today, I hope you take these notes home and I always leave three questions to ponder for you to think about throughout the week to put in your Bible, to look at, to reflect on this message. But as we go to prayer, I just want to challenge you. Do you or you have that confident assurance that you are part of God's forever family? Let's pray, let's pray. And maybe you're here today and maybe you've been wondering, am I really, really in the faith? This makes all the difference in the world in how you live with confidence and joy or not, as you walk with Christ in this life. Maybe you're here today with heads bowed, eyes closed. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, I just want prayer. I want prayer and I wanna have that assurance that I truly am a follower of Christ. I've been doubting, I've been wondering, but I wanna make that clear today. Is there anyone? Just slip your hand up, no one's looking around. I just wanna pray for you. If you've struggled, Having that confident assurance that you are a follower of Christ. We take this very seriously. And if you are a believer, are there limits to what you will do when it comes to obeying God's commands and promptings in your life? That's a probing question. We want Jesus to be the Lord of our life. Does he have a blank check to every decision you make with your life? Or are we limiting him by being disobedient at times. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, that it's just a reminder for us who've been believers for a while or a long time that we can walk with confidence and joy in the will of God because of the things we've talked about, our obedience to your commands and our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Fill us with that hope and may we share that hope that's within us this week. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.